Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. We've all faced it, those moments when uh, we sense that there's, there's that thing there. We realize there's that thing in the room that everyone else realizes is there, but that no one else is, or that no one is talking about. That's the elephant in the room. These elephants exist in our families. Maybe it's a, a topic or an issue that's just off limits uh, to your spouse or to your in-laws or to your siblings or to your parents. These elephants can exist in the workplace. We know that there might be these social or political issues that you know that you should never broach with your employer or your um, coworker that sits across the room from you. And unfortunately, there are these elephants that exist in the church, these elephants in the room. And so over the course of the next few weeks, over the course of the next month, we're going to address one of these elephants that exists in the room of the church. We're going to be talking about mental illness, uh, depression, anxiety, suicide, bipolar, addiction, and the slew of other disorders that fall in that world of mental illness. Now, when you hear that we're going to be talking about that for the next three or four weeks, you usually have one of, or I hear one of two responses. I hear, really? We're going to talk about that with everything else that's going on in the world right now, the political climate, the social climate, that's the thing that we're going to talk about. So we hear that, or we hear this. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Finally, I don't feel so alone. And that response, those two responses indicate why this is an elephant in the room. Because there are some that have never dealt with this issue, issues of mental illness, depression, anxiety, whatever it may be. They've never dealt with it, so they don't understand it. They've never faced it. So they see it as something that's insignificant because it's never really impacted their world. So they're kind of idle to it emotionally. And that only further compounds the issue because it forces those who are actually wrestling with it, when they see that people are kind of ambivalent to this issue, it forces those who actually face this presence in their life to deal with it in the shadows. There's a book that I was reading over the last few weeks preparing for this message, and the author is Amy Simpson. The book's called Troubled Minds, Mental Illness, and the Church's Mission. And look what Amy said after she spent years researching uh, this issue of mental illness, but specifically its relationship with the church. Amy said this, The church stigmatizes mental illness to a degree that it now stigmatizes almost nothing else. The stigma is deeply ingrained in our thinking about people with mental illness. People with mental illness and their families run up against a stigma that means immediate, mindless, irrational rejection because they are tainted by mental illness. They are marked for shame. They are labeled, stereotyped, misunderstood, and dismissed. In um, shame-based cultures, or honor-shame cultures, that word shame, what that means is ostracism, is that if you've done something to shame your name or to shame the name of your family or your clan or your tribe, what that means is you are ostracized from that community, that village, uh, that region where you have called or that you have called home for your life. You are no longer 
welcome there. And so what Amy is saying here is that people with mental illness and the families of those with the people who struggle with mental illness, they feel shame to that level, that they are not welcome, that they are ostracized, that they are therefore dismissed from the church based on her research and talking with hundreds of churches around the world. And historically, the church, historically, the uh, Christianity hasn't really done a whole lot to help with this stigma. Uh, Justin Welby, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, had this to say as he wrote the preface to a book. He said, Studies indicate that religious people are less stressed and happier than non-believers, and that religious people are less depressed, less anxious, and less suicidal than non-religious people. This only plays into a caricature, caricature of the Christian as perennially cheery. It is a cruel caricature for those Christians who are indeed depressed or experiencing other symptoms of mental illness. Often they feel guilty on top of being depressed because they understand their depression, their lack of thankfulness, their desperation to be a betrayal of God. He then goes on to unpack that these studies are deeply, deeply flawed and that this stigma actually played into the answers that were given by people in the church who responded to the survey. Because of shame and because of fear, they didn't give honest Answers. So the reality is, is that people in the church, religious people, are actually equally as depressed, equally as anxious as, as everyone else, and in some cases more so than others. But what he says here is that because this caricature of the perennially happy Christian, cheery Christian exists out there, those who are suffering in the shadows because of fear of shame or ostracism, they feel that there's something wounded or broken in them, that they're not thankful, that their struggle is actually, as he puts it, a betrayal to God. Welby goes on to say this, these studies simply deal with the objectivity of belief in God. For Christians, mentally ill or healthy, if our belief in God, our personal belief, that thing in God takes precedence over God himself in our theology and our devotion, we run the risk of worshiping ourselves the objectivity of our belief over the reality of God himself. So historically, the church has talked about these issues of mental health or mental illness as, as a sin issue, as a, a, an issue of, of a lack of, of faith or a lack of, of a belief, and that if it's a sin issue, all you simply need to do is to confess this sin in your life, get right before God, pray more, read the Bible more, and you're going to get better. Have you ever heard the word bedlam? Bedlam? Often in, in sporting events, you'll hear this word bedlam, like if a game is kind of has this crazy, wild finish or it goes into overtime on a last-second shot, they'll say, and the commentators will describe the arena as it's bedlam in here. And the Webster's definition of bedlam means uproar or confusion. It's kind of a, a madhouse. It's interesting. The etymology of that word bedlam is actually a truncated form of the word Bethlehem. And it was out of London, England... In the 18th century, the Church of England ran a hospital called the Bethlehem Royal Hospital in London. And this is where people who struggled with mental illness were sent. And they saw these crazy people who were put into this Bethlehem hospital and kind of in a cockney slang, they shrunk this word down to the word bedlam. This Bethlehem hospital run by Christians run by the Church of England, which deeply impacted the faith that we have here in America even today. These people that were institutionalized here were chained in cells for years on end, never seeing the light of day. Uh, some experienced experimental beatings 
day in and day out to see if that would heal them from their craziness or their illness. Some were forced to live in two-foot-by-eight-foot cages for two or three years as a, as a source of experimental therapy. Some had vices installed on their head that they would tighten and they would loosen as an experiment to see if that would help with whatever was going on with them. And some were simply starved as a means for treatment. And so it's interesting when you explore words like bedlam, uproar, crazy, mad, these images that come to mind when we talk about mental illness, we see them stigmatized all over our world. Let's run through some statistics to help us understand why, why is this an important issue? Why should we talk about this? 31.3 million adults in the U.S. take antidepressants. Clinical depression affects 16 million people and costs the U.S. $210 billion annually in productivity loss and health care needs. Approximately 1 in 25 adults in the U.S., uh, 9.8 million or 4%, experiences a serious mental illness in a year, in a given year, that substantially interferes with or limits one or more major of their, their major life activities. Approximately 1 in 5 youth, ages 13 to 18, 21.4%, experiences a severe mental disorder at some point during their life. For children 8 to 15, that estimate is 13%. 1.1% of the adults in the U.S. live with schizophrenia. 2.6% of adults in the U.S. live with bipolar disorder. 6.9% of adults in the U.S., 16 million, had at least one major depressive episode in the past year. 18.1% of adults in the U.S. experienced an anxiety disorder, such as PTSD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and specific phobias. Among the 20.2 million adults in the U.S. who experienced a substance use disorder, listen to this. So 20.2 million adults in the U.S. had a, had a substance abuse disorder. Over half of those adults, 10.2 million adults, had a co-occurring mental illness. And we look at these issues like substance abuse, addiction issues, and we, we isolate it to just that thing that they just don't have self-control in their life. We don't actually realize that that's often over half of the time precipitated by a mental illness that feeds into that as people try to self-medicate this pain, these broken areas of their life. Mental illness, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care uh, you, your color. It doesn't care your, of what your language is. It doesn't care of your education level. It is impacted some of the most prestigious and renowned and well-known people in modern history. Winston Churchill, who led England through World War II, said that he had his depression followed him around like a black dog. And he often talked about the black dog of depression. Most historians and psychologists actually say that um, Winston Churchill had bipolar disorder. And he said this, I don't like standing near the edge of a platform when an express train is passing through. I like to stand right back and, if possible, get a pillar between me and the train. I don't like to stand by the side of a ship and look down into the water. A second's action would end everything. A few drops of desperation. Abraham Lincoln, there are stories during the Civil War that those in his inner circle and his cabinet and those close to him knew that there were times in his life that he was not allowed to have knives or razors near him because his depression was so extreme. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher in England, known as the Prince of Preachers, one of the most renowned preachers in the history of the modern church, one of the most prolific writers and theologians of our time, there's stories where his deacons would actually have to come to his home on a Sunday morning, pick him up out of bed, and carry him to church 
to preach. And he said this, my deacons know very well enough how when I first preached in Exeter Hall, there was scarcely ever an occasion in which they left me alone for 10 minutes before the service, but they would find me in a most fearful state of sickness. Martin Luther, the father, and, uh, father of the Protestant Reformation, struggled with mental illness throughout his whole life, and he had this to say near the end of, this, of his life. He said, I've known these tribulations since my youth, but I never expected that they would so increase. So we hear about, we read about in history, we hear about in, in our culture this issue of mental illness, whatever it may be. And so today, uh, I want you to hear a story of someone who has been deeply impacted and shaped and wrestles with this to this day. Today, I want you to hear a bit of my story. As I survey the story of my life, I have never known life without depression, without anxiety, without mental illness. It's existed in my life since I was a child, my earliest memories at a really deep, kind of all-consuming Level. My earliest memories at four and five are marked by this issue of depression. I gave my life to Christ at a really young age, but it was very real, very tangible in my life in spite of that. I didn't know at the age of seven or eight years old that this thing, this thing that I discovered almost 30 years later, that this thing had a name. This thing was called bipolar two disorder. I just assumed that the normal internal monologue of a seven or eight-year-old could be transposed into the lyrics of a Morrissey or the Smiths song. And for those of you who get that reference, you're welcome. <laughs> and I'd wake up wondering, okay, today am I going to be angry at everyone around me and not know why? Or today am I going to wake up and be really shy around people that I've known and trusted for my whole life? Or is today going to be one of those days at six years old where I can't muster the energy to get out of bed and I just want to lay in bed and cry all day long? Or is today going to be one of those days when I'm kind of manic and excited, I'm trying to convince my friends in the neighborhood to do something crazy? Or is today going to be one of those days where I'm afraid to leave the house and I don't know why? And as a kid, I didn't understand this difference between, like, I didn't even know the word depression. I knew what, what sadness meant. But there's a difference between depression and sadness. Sadness happens and occurs in our life when something goes wrong, when you, when you suffer the loss of a loved one, when you break up with someone, or maybe you lose your, your job, and you can, you can be sad, you can even be depressed, like in seasonally out of an event like that in your life. But depression exists when you're sad, and you find yourself lifeless, and you find yourself hopeless when everything in your life is going right. This issue in my life was compounded because of the stigma that existed in my faith tradition. It was seen, as I spoke about earlier, as, as a sin issue. It was talked about as a, as a character defect. It was talked about as a, as a flaw, as a, as a lack of faith. I was told that if I would just read my Bible more, if I would just pray more, if I would just confess whatever the sin was in my life, then God would take this, this feeling away from me. This feeling not understanding how I could look out the window and see my friends playing in the street and laughing and having fun and just wake up out of the bed happy and smiling. And I, I just never had experienced that a day in my life. And so as a, as a kid, I heard that. And I would go to bed, and I would read the Bible, and I would pray, and I have hundreds of memories of nights laying in bed all night long as a child, crying, saying, God, what is wrong with me? I'm doing what I'm told I should do. 
I've confessed everything I can think to confess. I've read, I've prayed, God, what's wrong with me that I'm so broken that you won't take this thing away from me? I remember having this just kind of bizarre incident in my life when I was in sixth grade where I was playing basketball one Wednesday night at church and I broke my arm. And it was, it was painful, but as a, you know 11-year-old kid, it was kind of cool because I got to go to the emergency room and I got my, my cast. And I remember the next day going into school and seeing how everybody, all of my friends, wanted to run over and sign my broken arm. They wanted to run over and they wanted to sign my cast. But what I found was that if you talked about mental illness, depression, however I could articulate that at 11 years old, I found the opposite, that everybody wanted to run away from me. And as an introvert, I, I kind of lived in isolation, and I lived in shame because I was isolated with this issue. And at the age of 13, it just became a weight that was too much for me to bear. I couldn't find a safety net. I couldn't find anyone uh, to talk to that wouldn't tell me that this is sin. Something's broken within you. This is a lack of faith. Go and deal with it on your own. And so at 13, I got to a point where I was done. Like, if this is life, then life's not worth living. And so I acted on that. And some people in my church found out, and they came to me, and I, I trust to this day that it was with good intention, and they, they performed what I can only describe as a, as a mini exorcism on me, because it was obviously a demonic issue in my life that they felt. And it was this thing that was terrifying for me at 13 years old. It was a very traumatic moment in my life. It was a thing that was so powerful and so traumatic that that night I went to bed and I said, I am never talking about this ever again. I'm waking up tomorrow and no matter how I feel, no matter if I'm sad, if I'm angry, if I'm depressed, if these, these thoughts of ending my life are still there, I'm going to play the game because I don't want to ever go through that again. So for 20 years, I never spoke about it again to anyone. And I lived with it, and I wrestled with it, and I dealt with it all on my own. So during those next 20 years, hope began to flicker out. Maybe you've been there, maybe you're there today, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where daily I ask myself, is it life always going to be this miserable? I loved God. I loved the Word. I was involved in my church. At this point, I'd already given my life to ministry and decided that this was the path that I wanted to go down. But with all of that in my life, in a strong faith, I was asking the questions, is life always going to be this miserable? Am I always going to feel this broken? Is this me? Is this who I am? Because if this is, if so, I can't go on living like this. It may sound crazy. It may sound illogical for those who are in a healthy state until you know what hell on earth is. Is like, and then it makes total sense because it feels like you're drowning. Someone's holding you underwater while fear screams throughout your body, and you'll do anything to stop the pain because anything is better than this if this is what life is supposed to be. So there was this refrain that pray, played in my mind and in my heart and in my soul in the pain give up. This is who you are. You have no hope. In the pain, give up. This is who you are. You have no hope for 20 years. I hid this from my wife for 12 years of marriage. I was so afraid because I still believed that this was this, this deep character defect, that this was this flaw, and I couldn't reveal this to my wife because she thought she had married this guy, and apparently I'm this, this other guy over here, and I was so filled with shame because of it. I hid it from her for 12 years. 
Something happened on August 11th, 2014. I was at church in San Antonio leading a meeting, and I left there, and I opened my phone, and there was a text message on my phone, and I saw that Robin Williams had died, and he had ended his life. And either the day before or the day after, I can't remember, a good friend of mine from high school, this girl that I had grown up with in our church and in high school, um, just found out on Facebook that she had taken her own life. And I remember just feeling this sinking, weird, odd feeling coming out of that night. Two days later, August 13th, uh, Declan, that was his first birthday, our youngest child. And my wife sent me to our grocery store and she said, hey, I need you to pick up some party favors, pick up the cake. We're going to come home and have Declan's uh, first birthday party and all your family and some friends are going to be here. I'm just kind of swimming in this weird sea of emotion and just numbness to a certain extent. And I pulled into the parking lot of our grocery store that day. And I'd had a life to this point just riddled with anxiety and panic attacks. I knew that very well. But this one was unlike any that I'd ever faced before. And I remember pulling into the parking lot and getting to a parking space as fast as I could, stopping the car and sitting there. And it was the most extreme panic attack that I had ever had in my entire life. And I realized that I was back at that place. But back at that place in a far more real sense than I'd ever been. I was at the end of my rope. I had given up all hope. I conceded that life was never going to be any different, and this is just not how I wanted to live. And so I started to think about and plan, like, what do I need to do? I can't do this anymore. I just want to end it. But there was this shift that happened this day. The shift where our oldest son, Declan, or Colton, was four years old, and I realized, oh, he would remember me now. And I felt like the rug was kind of pulled out from underneath my feet. And I don't care, honestly, if this makes you nervous or anxious. I'm going to be real because we need to address this issue. And I realized that my son now was old enough that he would remember his dad if his dad was here and then his dad was all of a sudden gone. There's a shift that happened. And there was also a shift for some reason coming out of that. I was at the lowest point in my life. No hope, conceded that this was the end, this is never going to get better, so what do I have to lose? And I went home, and for the very first time, I opened up to my wife. For the first time, I told her, this is, this is what I've dealt with for 35 years of my life. And then something slowly began to unravel and unfold. She began to talk to me. And she encouraged me to talk to a friend of mine that she knew through a friend had similar issues. What do I have to lose? So I went to him and began to talk to him. And then over the course of the next few months, I began to open up to another friend of mine. And so now there are three people that I'm talking to. And I made a decision to begin to speak about this issue, this thing in my life that I had not talked to one person about in over 20 years. And I opened up to my pastor at our church, one of my closest friends, my mentor to this day, said, hey, I bet you, I know this is probably not what you want to hear from a pastor that serves on your staff, but here's where I am. And day by day, I don't know how this story is going to end, but this is my reality. And this is the reality I've only, I've known for all of my life. Which then led to, about three months later, finding myself in front of my church in San Antonio, telling the same story. Watch this. So in the midst of this moment, um, 
you begin journeying in a different way. Mm. Um, I got to be a part of that and witness that. Um, so tell us a little bit about this journey then, this new journey that God has you on, um, of which this is a part. But even more specifically, tell us how, how you overcame this depression. And, and I use that word intentionally because that's often how we look at it, that it just can be overcome. And so tell us a little bit about your journey, how you overcame this, this cloud. I didn't. Hmm. And I, uh, I don't know if I ever will. And I don't know that it's actually God's plan for me to. As I look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh. And he said that he cried out to God three times to remove it from him. And, and he didn't. And so for me, I believe this could be my thorn in the flesh. I haven't conceded that, but I think that that could uh, be the truth. So out of that August 13th moment, uh, it led into what was definitely the darkest time in my life, uh, a time where day by day, uh, my wife and I, uh, I didn't know uh, if I was going to make it. And, uh, but it did lead to a process over the first time in our marriage that I opened up, and I was honest, and I put it on the table and said, I have no hope, Val. I have no idea how this is going to end, but I opened up to her. I began to open up to some friends that are in this room right now. I opened up to you. I uh, found a therapist, went to a doctor, uh, got some medications that have been incredibly helpful for me. And through that process, um, God has shown me incredible grace, incredible mercy. And that's what I've learned about this thorn, that he may not want to rid me of my depression, but he wants to give me overwhelming grace through it. Mm -hmm. He wants to give me compensating power that can only come through him, whereas I looked my whole life to, this is something wrong with me, this is some issue, this is a sin issue, this is a lack of faith, that God said, no, this is something that I want to bear along with you. So as I look at this issue of depression, anxiety, thoughts of suicide, I see this as a cross that I'm called to take up daily, and a cross that God wants to be right there with me to carry. And I'll just say, and this is kind of unscripted, um, it's been one of the healthiest things for us as a staff to have this level of honesty, this level of transparency come into the room and for us to talk through marriage, for us to talk through personal things, to carry that together. And what we've seen emerge on a staff level is a far healthier, more whole staff that walks with God in a much deeper way. And so that we use this word of overcome in a sense that, yeah, this may not be something that God you know, may or may not ever take. But in the other sense, we've seen this amazing overcoming, uh, corporately even, as we walk this road together. I went into that morning thinking, well, having a lot of fear, but thinking, wow, this is going to be this moment of freedom. This is going to be this cathartic moment for the first time that I'm sharing this story, not to just two or three people, but to over a thousand people at our church that day. And I was in for quite a surprise. I think it's kind of funny how I said that that was the darkest time of my life going into that and then having no idea what the next three years of my life would be because it far surpassed anything that I had experienced to that point. I began to climb as a couple, as a church with my friends and with our pastor, what was the, the most difficult and steep mountain in my journey of life so far. Fast forward to December 2016, I had kind of become the champion for this issue at our church, and I had been able to speak to dozens of people 
who coming out of that morning felt a sense of freedom that finally someone's talking about this issue in a real way and putting a real face behind an issue. I actually decided in the midst of that that I was going to write my doctoral dissertation on this issue of mental health. And it went, sometimes went well. Some days were better than others, and medication and therapy and all of that was definitely helpful and ups and downs, and I found some sort of equilibrium, but it was still a struggle and still a battle. In December of 2016, there was this moment in my life, and I won't get into all the details of it now, but it was a truly deep and the most real tangible encounter that I've ever had with God, where for the first time in my life, it was like my head was pulled out of the water and I experienced freedom, and I talk about it more in a few weeks from now. I had freedom, I had clarity of mind, clarity of heart and spirit, literally for the first time in my life. And I thought, I don't know what this is, I don't know what just happened, but this is what it feels like to not have this elephant on my shoulders. This burden, this depression, this anxiety, this bipolar 2 disorder, all of that, it was gone. And I had hope in a sense and in a way that I'd never had hope before. I had joy in my marriage and in our family and in relationships with others like I never had before. And I began to believe this thing is gone. It's gone. It's over. It's done with. And then three months ago, it started to creep back in. Don't know what happened. Didn't do anything. There wasn't a sin. It wasn't a, a character issue or a lack of faith or anything like that. But I began to ignore it, and I became afraid of it. But I did something in December of 2016 to this day, I can't believe that I did, and I have an immense shame of, because like I said, I had become the champion of this issue at our church and kind of in our area. I had posted an excerpt of this interview with my pastor on YouTube, and it had like 50,000 views, and God was using it in some unique ways. And then we found out about this church called Arise Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We said, oh, Sounds like an interesting thing. We began to have this conversation, and then this thought popped in the back of my head. If they see that, they're not going to want anything to do with you. I went, and I had the video taken down, deleted. I'd written dozens of blog posts about mental health in the church and a little bit of my story. I deleted my blog out of shame, out of fear about the same thing that I had been talking about, the same stigma that I had been trying to tear down, Same thing that I was championing, this cause, that hope can be found in the midst of pain, in the midst of depression. My own fear, my own insecurity caused me to give in to that elephant, to give in to that stigma. Throughout my story, I always believed that change of environment would make things better. So I was in three different elementary schools, I was in three different middle schools, two different high schools, went to three different colleges, two different seminaries, constantly believing this lie that if I can just get somewhere else and with a different group of people and I can just hit the restart button, then everything's going to be better. And I had spoken that and said, that's, that's a lie, that's not going to make things better. But I think subtly, I believe that if we move to South Dakota, this church is amazing, these people are incredible, we can get a fresh start in the midst of this freedom that I'm experiencing, and everything's going to be better. In March of this year, sitting on this stage, teaching the first of this vision series that I was really excited about, really trying to press down the reality of this growing depression, anxiety, the, the, the effects of bipolar that were creeping back up in my life, 
And I'm sitting here talking, I'm looking around the room, and it's building, and it's building, and it's building in my heart. Some of you were here that morning, and a full-fledged panic attack hit me. My mind went blank, I couldn't speak, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks of its back. And it's powerful. John, you've isolated yourself yet again, and here you are on an island, and you're done. And I walked off stage, and I went away, and I hid in shame. So here I am. So here we are. And maybe you find yourself still thinking, well, really, this is, this is what we're going to talk about? This may be your struggle, but this isn't my struggle. And the answer is yes, really, this is what we're going to talk about. Because we don't get enough prayer requests for hope, for people asking for hope in the teeth of debilitating anxiety or depression. Because we don't hear enough praise reports from the alcoholic who has just experienced one month of sobriety or in life groups. We don't get to hear from the people or the person with a secret eating disorder. Because we don't think that a bipolar mood crash is worthy of getting a casserole or getting put on the meal request calendar. So why are we going to talk about this as a church? We're going to talk about it because Jesus was called to walk with people in distress, in brokenness, in shame, in depression, in anxiety, in addiction, in disorders, and so are we. Turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. A story many of us are familiar with, the story of the road to Emmaus. Jesus has, has, has died. He's been put in a tomb. He's been resurrected. He's conquered the grave. He's conquered the death. People know of, of, of his death, but not everyone has received word of the resurrection or seen him face to face, face since the resurrection. Luke 24, 13 says, Now that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Jesus came up and walked along with them. This language of walking with is so important because it shows us that he's not afraid to come alongside of those who are in mental anguish, who are in distress, in despair, in fear. I think the temptation for us as a church, as just human beings, is to stay away from people who are in situations like that because we don't have all the answers. Maybe we haven't experienced what they have experienced, and so we don't want to say the wrong thing. And so fear keeps us at a distance. Jesus comes and he walks along with them. And notice that it doesn't say that he gets out in front of them either. He doesn't get out in front of them and stop them in their tracks and scold them and say, chill out. You're just suffering from PTSD. He just, his posture, notice his posture. He comes alongside of them. He's a fellow companion on their journey. Look at this image here. I love this painting. It's of the road to Emmaus. Jesus offers his presence here with them in their moment. He simply surrounds them with his presence. It's almost eerily similar to what happens in 1 Kings 19 whenever Elijah runs away and asks God at Mount Horeb. He says, I don't want to live, essentially saying, I, I want to die. I'm, I'm su- suicidal. God doesn't say anything. It says that Elijah doesn't experience God or hear from God in the earthquake or in the fire or in the breaking of the rock, but he hears from God in the still small voice. He hears from God in just the 
quiet and the stillness of his presence. God doesn't reprimand Elijah because of his lack of faith. All that he had experienced, all the miracles that he had walked alongside of him with, he just calms him with his non-anxious presence, this still, soft voice. Luke 24, 17, And he, Jesus, asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. They stopped. Their faces downcast. He knows what they're wrestling with, but he still asks the question. And then he listens. And what we can learn from this, if you're afraid to speak into someone's life who is struggling with mental illness because you don't know really what to say, often what we do is we want to rush to offer solutions. But what we can learn through this is that the right to speak into someone's life is earned through listening. We want to rush to offer advice and solutions, but not listen because we're afraid that we're going to say maybe the wrong thing or we don't know how to respond to what they're going to put before us. But the right to speak into someone's life is first earned through listening. We shouldn't be quick to say these things that I've heard from other people during my journey. Uh, My wife gets depressed, so I know exactly what you're going through. Or my uncle suffers with bipolar disorder, so I know exactly how you feel. Well, we all get sad. You'll get over it. Tomorrow you're going to wake up on the other side of the bed. Or like somebody told me after that message in San Antonio, a guy came up to me and said, hey, I know plenty of people who take crazy pills. You're not alone. Or I get anxious too. You'll get over it. It's all going to be okay. Comments like that are the best and quickest way to shut down the conversation. The response that you should have is simple. Say, I'm sorry. I can't imagine what's that, what that's like. Acknowledge that I don't know maybe what to say, but I'm simply here to listen. I'm here to care for you. I'll encourage you where you need encouragement. I'll pray for you where you need prayer. And just ask questions. Because trauma and pain, it kind of blunts access to our feelings. And what's interesting in this text is you notice that Jesus' question, when he asks them this question, it stills them. It says they're walking, and it says they stand still. They stop. And there's this moment of integration in the stopping that we see here, this moment of integration between mind, body, spirit, soul, where their emotions surface. It says their faces are downcast. That word downcast means sorrow or full of, of grief. There's this moment of integration with the, quest, the simple question that Jesus asks them where they stop, they consider his words. This emotion, this trauma, this emotion that's been blunted by trauma surfaces on their face. And in the next verse, it says, One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus knows, but he says, what things, he asked. Jesus knows the answer, but he plays the role of a good counselor here, and he just simply asks questions. And what we're going to do is pick up next week with Jesus' response to their answer. In a recent survey, it said over 50% of people who came to the church with issues of mental illness, the desperation brought on by depression, by addiction, by certain disorders, were told that it's not a physical struggle, but it's simply due to a lack of faith or because of sin in their life. And I want to tell you, if that's you today, that is a cop-out. That is a cop-out if you have heard that from the church. 
These things are psychological. These things are physiological. But there are spiritual components to play at play here for sure. But what has unfortunately happened is the church, they want to make it a singular issue. They want to make it a spiritual issue. They want to make it a spiritual issue so that they can just push you away, say this is faith, this is sin, this is doubt, this is lack of belief, and now it's on your plate to go and to deal with. But I believe in a God that wants to heal us spiritually. I believe in a God that wants to heal heal us psychologically. And I, I believe in a God that wants to heal us physiologically as well. As a church, as a rise church, as, as the broader church, we are called to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. So we commit to being like him in this, to being and taking the posture of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, to walk alongside of you and your journey, to listen, to be a companion with you on this journey, not to get out in front of you and to turn around and scold you and tell you where you're wrong, but to listen, to encourage, to ask questions, to offer hope that can be found in the word. So today, it's kind of an introduction. It's a bird's eye view of this series, but it's also an invitation, an invitation to join us on this journey. We want to offer prayer. We want to offer care. We want to offer support and resources and accountability if you're willing to accept them. If you go to our website on the front page, there's a really amazing book that has been incredibly helpful for me, a book written by John Piper called When the Darkness Will Not lift, looking at this issue of depression, and you can actually download the book there. Uh, We've partnered with Bethesda Counseling Services. I met with their founder a couple of weeks ago, and they want to support us in this in this series, and they want to support you if this is a, a something you're struggling with, so we'd love to help you make that connection as well. But we want to, in this moment, with, with the emotion real, with the feelings at their surface, also do something that might be a little bit countercultural. We want to pray for you. We want to have our prayer team, and I'm going to go ahead and ask our prayer team and our elders, those who are willing to pray today, just make yourself available on the sides, on each side of the stage here. And we'll pray here in a moment. And they are here to listen. They're here to care for you. They are here to pray with you and offer any support or advice that you may need. They're here to connect you with those resources um, that I spoke about here a minute ago. I want to end with this. Psalm 88. One of the most interesting texts in all of Scripture. And listen as, as I read it, and then I'll sum it up here at the end. Says, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves." You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteous in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth 
up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And that's the end of the psalm. No resolution. That's how it ends. What's interesting, the first line, you may see it in your Bible. This Psalm 88 is a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. It says it's written to the choir master. So what this means is this psalm that's filled with sorrow, that's filled with brokenness and depression and, and desperation, that doesn't offer, offer a safety net, a resolution. This was sung as a praise song, as a worship song in the temple. What this tells us today is that God wants us to worship him in that brokenness, with that depression as the fuel for our worship, to bring that before him, to lay it out in front of him. And like the companion that Jesus was to these disciples on the road to Emmaus, God wants to hear, he wants to listen, and we want to hear, and we want to listen, whatever that may be. So wherever you are, go ahead and just bow your heads now. And our team is on the side, and they're here to pray for you. If you feel comfortable, to offer support and encouragement. So anytime now or in the next few moments or as we sing here, um, you can go ahead and make your way to them, and they would love the opportunity to pray. God, it's so often our temptation to offer cliched and trite little one-liners to you and to offer them as hope to other people. But God, the reality is, is that in the teeth of depression, brokenness and pain and in anguish don't really mean a lot. But God, what means something is the reality of your presence, the presence that was with Elijah, your presence that was with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, God reality of your presence is what matters. God, we ask for your presence to be made manifest here right now in our lives, in our brokenness, in our midst. God, but we need to be reminded of your presence in a, in a tangible way, physical way as well. So God, as, as your followers, as apprentices to your way, God, we commit as a church to joining with people on their journey no matter where they are. So I pray that for those who are sitting here right now and are, are fearing shame, are fearing eyes that may watch them if they go up to pray and think, wow, if I go to pray, does that mean that I'm acknowledging that I'm depressed or I, I have some sort of disorder or addiction or whatever it may be? God, I pray that you will remove those lies from their mind. God, and I pray that they will sense a love from this room, a love and support, and that there's no judgment there's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no room for any of that in the church. God, death was defeated on the cross. Grace and mercy was offered in the resurrection. Make that real here today. Father, we love you. We give our lives to you. and We admit that it's messy and it's broken. Even after submitting ourselves to you and following you, God, sometimes it just doesn't get better. But God, we have hope in restoration, hope in the resurrection, hope in the future that is to come, and hope in community. God, we have hope in companionship and relationship. 
God, I pray we would discover that here today. In your name we pray.